Hey, welcome everybody to Martini's Biscotte on a Friday afternoon. Hope you all had a great week. I know I did. And we did at St. Clair Range. Martini's Biscotte, a show about winning at business. Whether you're a manager, a director, C-suite, shareholder, investor, this is a show that is intended to drive a discussion about various topics at winning at business. All right, I think we're going to have a short one today. But uh, I want to talk about actually two calls that I had today, both of which I thought raised interesting points for the show. The first one is I got a call uh, from a listener, uh, which is cool. I like that. Uh, I like when the community comes back with uh, with questions and comments and discussions. So I had a call from a, uh, a listener whose business is not his business. The, the uh, he works for a business as a as a general manager or president or something. And then, the you know, we spoke with the owner of this business as well. And so the owner manager uh, is on the verge of, of losing his business. Uh, they've got cash flow problems. They have creditor problems. They're trying to save jobs. And they just wanted to have an open discussion and some general advice, which I love to do. I'm always happy to give. So if you're in a similar situation or you have any business questions, feel free to reach out on the YouTube uh, uh, if you're listening to YouTube, reach out in the comments section or go to the SinclairRange.com website. Reach out there. Reach out to me. Reach out to Ashley. Uh, but try to track me down. You can look me up on LinkedIn. is always a good way to get a hold of me. Anyways, listen, I'm not going to give you any details on uh, this guy's business or industry or numbers or anything along that lines. But I am going to use some of the examples and some of the, the profile of what we discussed so I can give you some of the examples and the advice that I gave this person because I think they're relevant. The only thing I will tell you for certain is that this, this is a Canadian company, which is relevant because the jurisdiction that you are in drives the, drives the remedies of your secured creditors. It drives the insolvency remedies that the debtor, that the, uh, the company would have available to them to protect themselves. And so the discussion was in context of Canadian law, not U.S. law, not some other jurisdiction. Um, and other than that, I want to focus on the thinking. So the general uh, outline here <clears throat> was that the business is in financial trouble. They may not have enough money to get through the week with their suppliers. They're worried about payroll, which I think was next week. They have a bank, uh, which would be your first secure creditor. Now, on several shows in the last week, I've been talking, even two weeks, I've been talking about troubled company negotiations. Uh, and the first thing and most important thing to know is what I've described as the pecking order of your creditors. So, and in more sophisticated terms, the priority order of your capital stack. So who's registered first as a secure creditor? Your bank, your second bank, if there's a term loans or subordinated banks, um, uh, unsecured, other, other secured debts that are subordinated, unsecured creditors, shareholders. If you're on the podcast, that is the order. If you're watching me on YouTube, you got to see my hand uh, gestures to scope that out. Um, always good to watch the podcast. Always good to watch the YouTube for that reason. I think there's been a lot of visuals lately. Anyways, um, <clears throat> in this situation, his first secured would be the bank, and the bank, um, the bank is worried about the business because they have an idea of what's going on. And they have not demanded as yet, but they have sat the company down and very strongly have said that they want a workout plan. They want some feedback as to what's going to happen with this company and they want it in the next two to three weeks. And when I asked some questions of this uh, of these individuals about their assets, 
um, to try to establish, as I said in a prior show this week, not only do you need to know the priority order of your capital stack, of your stakeholders, what the pecking order is, but you need to value those claims as a starting point. In other words, would the bank get its money back in a receivership? And we established that there's probably enough assets in the receivables, inventory, fixed equipment to pay this bank back if there was a receivership. Not much more, but pretty much enough to pay them back. So we know that. Um, and we know uh, where the bank is on the pecking order, which is number one. I, I didn't ask about uh, deemed trust uh, claims, so uh, revenue authorities, which would rank ahead of the bank, uh, also discussed on another show. So, um, but let's assume that there's none for the purpose of discussion. So there's your bank, and if they were put into a receiver, they would get out, and they're worried about this. Then they have, so that's bank number one. Now there's bank number two, <clears throat> and I think they're on a term loan on specific equipment, or I'm not sure what they are. But the bottom line is, they're second secured, and so they're second in the pecking order, and they don't know what's going on. They're detached, uh, they get their monthly reporting. I assume, I just know who the bank is, so I didn't even ask questions about that. But they haven't demanded, they haven't sat the company down with a bunch of concern. Um, they're gonna sit there and they're gonna watch what's going on. And if I were to value their position, because I know that my first bank is gonna get out, but without much left over, then my second bank therefore is worth zero, maybe a little bit, but pretty much worth zero. Now it gets more interesting. Uh, this, this owner of this business, in fact, is a minority owner uh, because he has outside investors and the outside investors um, own the majority and also they have secured debt. So they've loaned the company um, uh, cash, they've taken security over that, and they also own the majority of the shares. There's something wrong in that premise and I asked a couple of times and I didn't get an answer. I, I don't understand how you have both the shares for the investment and the debt for, from the investment, um, unless the shares were kickers, but nobody gives a change of control uh, as kickers and shares. So there's something that's probably not making sense there, but let's just run with it. So the outside investors own a majority. They control the board of directors. They have, uh, the company owes them money, which is secured and they have demanded. What does demanded mean? Well, it depends on your jurisdiction. But in Canada, uh, the bankruptcy law is federal, uh, and the and you uh, you have to under I'm not a lawyer, but under common law, you have to give fair notice. And fair notice in Canada is deemed usually to be ten days. So what a what a demand notice says is you owe us this money. We're secured over these assets. We want our money back. We're demanding, and you have ten days to pay us. And if you don't pay us in ten days we have the ability to turn to our remedies under the GSA, the General Security Agreement, so we can go and act on our assets, and that would be a foreclosure or a subject to other notices or a point to receiver, go to court, whatever we're going to do as a lender. So the outside investors in third position on the pecking order have, in fact, demanded. <clears throat> now, that raises all sorts of interesting questions for me because... We know that their positions were zero. I mean, second position in the pecking order was zero. First gets their money back. Second is zero. Third's definitely zero. But by demanding, they probably triggered an event of default in the second and the first positions. And the first and second positions probably don't know that yet. <clears throat> and the third position being the outside investors, they probably don't realize that's what they did either. And they're walking themselves into zero recovery uh, because the bank is bank number one is going to walk away with all this. So 
Um, I'm not going to walk you through the strategy. There's the lay of the land, but I'm not going to walk you through the strategy because I, I have a couple of ideas on how this owner manager might save the day. <coughs> um, one being cooperative, <coughs> excuse me, one idea of being cooperative and, and uh, um, less aggressive. And the other idea of being super aggressive and really profitable. Um, so I won't put you through those ideas, but there were some items that came up that I thought were relevant to uh, for everybody to think about uh, because I hear these sorts of same questions over and over again with owner managers that are running troubled companies. Here's number one. You're never in as much trouble as you think. Things never move as quickly as you think. You wake up in the morning, you're stressed, the phone's ringing on collection calls, you're worried about payroll, the bank's demanding, uh, you're gonna lose everything. You've personally guaranteed everything, bank number one, bank number two, a bunch of equipment leases that we haven't even talked about. So you've personally guaranteed all this stuff. You're looking at personal bankruptcy. bankruptcy. Um, I'm not saying it's relevant to this situation. This situation is just hypothetical. Well, it's real, but I'm using it as an example, a hypothetical example to highlight these points. But what goes through owner manager minds is, okay, if all this goes wrong, if I lose, now I have a personal bankruptcy, what does that mean for my family? Am I going to be able to feed my kids? My wife's going to leave me. Um, and you start getting this circle of negative uh, emotions that cloud your thinking. And, and it's a very, very difficult situation. You need help from an outside advisor to walk you through that. But um, what is always important to know is that if you don't have experience in this, you think everything is imminent. Everything is not imminent. We always, in, uh, in my experience, when I'm looking at these sorts of deals for 20, 30 years, I, I figure you have six months more than you think you do in terms of time. But stop messing around. You need to get on it. You need to get on it now. Uh, you need to start taking action and you need to have a plan. That's the most important thing is to have action, take action, have a plan. And if your plan isn't working by noon, amend it. But don't sit around and think about this for a month. You don't have that much time, okay? But you have more time than you think. So there's number one. Number two that I thought was interesting and came, came up is this idea of uh, secured lenders having to demand. People think, and, I, and I'm dealing with this on another file this week as well, one that we're looking at acquiring, is the, the lender demanded they serve the 10-day notice and the company thinks it's over, right? The, the bank shut down our account. Well, they didn't shut down their account. The whole point of a 10-day demand is that the account operates as normal. You don't get over advances. Um, you know, you're not getting a bunch of favors from your banker, but the account operates as normal. And hopefully the 10 day period drives a discussion. Um, you know, you can enter a forbearance agreement potentially, uh, but the bottom line is the bank can't act until this notice period is over. So the 10 day, the demand is the start of the clock. It's not the end of the clock. Now, be careful, not all jurisdictions um, have this notice period concept. We acted on a deal uh, in the US, I won't give you the state because it might give the deal away. Um, this was about a year ago. There was no demand period. We were able to just to say, hey, here's our demand and we're coming in this afternoon, uh, which I kept arguing with my own counsel, is that legit? Apparently it was. Anyways, we won that one. <coughs> and there's a demand period. It's the start of the clock. If you're in Canada, use it wisely. Um, try to be cooperative, um, but it's not the end of the world. 
is the start of the serious negotiations. Okay, which leads us into the next point, which is protecting yourself. I find a lot of companies uh, in Canada don't really understand the whole CCAA uh, process. That's the Companies, uh, Company Creditors Arrangement Act, um, which would be similar to Chapter 11 in the US. So the company goes to court and it says, uh, and it says, hey, judge, we need your help to reorganize. Just put a stop to everything for me, please. And then we're going to come up with a plan to, to maximize value, to pay out our stakeholders in their packing order as much as we possibly can. In Canada, that would be a CCAA. There's another way to do it in Canada, which is called the Notice of Intention to File a Proposal under the Bankruptcy Act. It's a much cheaper, simpler way to go about it. The, the acronym for it would be an NOI, Notice of Intent. <clears throat> um, and you can do that really in about a day or two days of preparation. So the point being that companies confuse this. They say, well, the bank's going to put us into CCAA. Well, the bank's not doing anything. The bank's remedies are after they demand, they can put in a receiver, they can try to foreclose on their assets. The CCAA, the NOI, the US, the Chapter 11, and other, and other remedies are ways for companies to protect themselves. It's not ways for lenders to attack companies. It's exactly the opposite. It's the company going to the court and saying, hey, help me out. I want to run this business because if we shut it down, yeah, the first guy might get all his money back, but the second bank's getting zero. These investors in third place are getting zero. My unsecured creditors, the suppliers are getting zero. Whereas if I keep running, and the shareholders are getting nothing, but if I keep running, maybe I can create some value out of this thing and clean up my balance sheet and, and give these stakeholders you know, what they're worth today and maybe a little bit more if they buy into a plan. Right. That, that's what that's all about. So just remember that, you know, Chapter 11, CCAA, NOI, it's not something that the creditor is necessarily pushing um, or even has in Canada. The creditor doesn't even have the ability. Well, it's not technically true, uh, but most often they don't have the ability to even come up with that process. It's the company that does that to seek protection. And how do they do that? A director's resolution. So have the have the investors done that? Well, my guy doesn't have control of the board, but he's on the board. And he would, when I say my guy, the fellow that phoned me, um, he would know. He would know if uh, there was a director's resolution. So the company has not sought protection um, and it probably needs to think about doing that, uh, possibly. Um, and an important point is you need to know your, you need to talk to a lawyer about seeking protection and what works and what doesn't work. Because for example, an NOI in Canada uh, it stays your creditors, but technically it doesn't stay the secured creditor. All of this is to, even a CCAA, is to compromise unsecured creditors. Secured creditors, they have security over their assets, which could be the whole business or could be a specific piece of equipment. It could be a mortgage on a piece of real estate. Um, so really, if you have a hostile secured creditor, uh, seeking protection may be a super short-term remedy for that, but it's probably not a long-term remedy. You need to have a plan and you need to negotiate with the secured creditors, um, which leads me to uh, my other point is when you're negotiating with creditors, or my next point is when you're negotiating with creditors, there's really three outcomes that I like to think about. And I think it, you know, it helps define, it helps clarify the thinking, just knowing that there's three possibilities here, clarifies the thinking of the owner manager entering into these sort of, sort of negotiations. And here it is, number one, Number one is go ahead, secure creditor, act on your security. Um, and if you say that to bank number two or to the investor secure creditors in this example, 
uh, go ahead and act on it and you're going to get zero. In fact, by demanding from your third place position, you're going to trigger the bank in first place to position to also demand and go after the assets and you're guaranteed to get zero out of this. So you ought to work with us. Otherwise, you're getting nothing. Okay, there's option number one. Option number two is I valued your claim at zero. Okay, and let's say these investors, let's just make up a number. Let's say they put in $3 million. Well, it's a million dollars for a round, nice round number. <clears throat> let's say they put it, so I valued your claim at zero. Here's a, in a grander scheme, here's $100,000 and you go away and, and you forgive the rest or I buy your claim, whatever the mechanism is for that transaction. So you pay them less cents on the dollar. And if you talk to a bankruptcy trustee who does NOIs for a living, they'll tell you that, you know, you need to offer zero claims. You need to offer them between 10 and 20 cents on the dollar. Otherwise they're gonna vote against you just out of spite. Okay, that's just a mentality. If you say, here's, here's three cents on the dollar or five cents on the dollar, they're just gonna say piss off because it's not enough money and they're mad at you, right? If you start offering 10, 15, 20 cents on the dollar, uh, that's something that they have to think about no matter their level of anger with you for screwing them out of their cash in their point of view. So um, you can say to them option number two. So let's go. Option number one is do what you got to do and you're going to get zero. Option number two is here's a hundred grand on your million or 200 grand on your million. Go away. Option number three is we're going to work on getting your million dollars back, but we're going to turn it into a term loan and we're going to pay out over seven years or 10 years, like a really long period of time. And here's the cash flows that support that. Okay, and I'm not paying the interest and you don't get to, you gotta give up your control over the company because I need to work on this thing. Um, but you can keep some security, uh, but let us operate our business. And this is a mechanism to spread this out over a long period of time and share a little bit of the recovery of this business with that creditor. And that's it. <clears throat> Those are your three options. Do what you gotta do, get zero. Take a small check now and go away, buy into a plan uh, for a long period of time that lets you potentially recover if this turnaround is successful or some combination of that. If you can just narrow your thinking down to those three options um, and explain it to your counterparty, the creditor that you're negotiating with, you're gonna be way better off. Last point on this, uh, on this particular example I wanted to raise is there's always discussions, I hear this all the time, Because I say to them, what do these investors want? Like they've demanded, now they're gonna, they're gonna get zero. They're triggering the bank to take this thing away from everybody, including themselves. What do they want? And they say, well, they wanna sell the business. So, well, who, who the hell's gonna buy it? And they go, oh, there's buyers. Everybody says that, there's always buyers. Well, you know what, there's always interest, but no one's gonna buy the business. I don't need to tell you the industry. I don't need to tell you the location. I don't need to tell you anything. I said to this guy, I said, change size of the table. Put your buyer's hat on. Pretend, you know, you're a businessman. You may not be sophisticated in all these sorts of things, but you know your industry, right? You know what you're doing. You're, you're an entrepreneur. Pretend you're the buyer. You walk into this thing. You got a company where you've got hostile investors who deserve nothing in terms of value. They, they deserve zero. You got a second bank who doesn't even know what's going on, but their claim is also worth zero. You got a first bank who needs to put in a receiver to get their money back. You're going to miss payroll. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going, you know, you got a bad seasonality coming at you. Um, there's all sorts of things going on that make this thing a mess. How do you buy that company? You're not gonna pay money for the shares, right? You're gonna assume all this liability and you're way underwater day one. <clears throat> I talked to you in a show, I think last week about 
how to buy a troubled company and, and ways to think about structuring that. But business owners don't know how to do that. It's not something they do every day. They don't even buy a healthy company every day, never mind a troubled company. A troubled company is its own beast. Time is of the essence. You need to move quick. You need to protect yourself. And very few potential synergistic partners, acquirers, know how to do that. Like very few, like none. No one is coming to buy this business. And I asked him to think about that. And there was a pause on the phone. He said, you know what? You're right. Like no one's coming to buy this business. So just get that out of your head. Um, you know, in a solvency process, they run, <clears throat> they run uh, uh, sales investment uh uh, process where they're trying to find buyers through this to establish value, which is, you know, it never works well. It rarely works well. I'm not a believer in that process. Uh, but regardless, it, it what it does do is it has a court say, okay, you're the buyer. That's the number. Here's a vesting order, which means that you get these assets free and clear of all debt. I'm going to deal with all this debt over here and all these claims. I'm the court. I'm going to do that. You, you just paid a check, you wrote a check and you got all, you got this business. Go ahead, have fun with that, right? Outside of a court and a process uh, that's sanctioned by a court, there are no buyers. This is not gonna work. There's very few sophisticated financial players like uh, myself, for example, and Sinclair Range. There's a few of those, but uh, they're few and far between. All right, so that was my discussion uh, in my, uh, my call with these fellows today. Um, I'm gonna try and help them out as best I can. Um, they're a smaller business, so it's hard for uh, hard for us to get entirely behind that, But uh, and they're remote to me. But they seem like good guys. I'm going to try to help, help them out, and they're listeners to the show. always like to help out uh, listeners of Martinis with Scott. Which leads me to my second uh, topic for today. I thought I was going to crank through the first one in about five minutes, and here I am 21 minutes in already. Uh, the second topic I want to put forward today is uh, setting the table for negotiations. So what does that mean? You've heard that expression, set the table. And I think what it means is you purposely make a set of conditions uh, so that you can have a good deal when negotiating with your counterparty, right? So you look at where you are now, and you don't just dive, you don't, you don't pick up the phone which I did today, we had a pre-arranged conference call. You don't pick up the phone and enter into negotiations without having thought about your respective positions, what you're trying to accomplish, and trying to give yourself the best advantage or at least a, a fighting chance um, at coming up with a good deal for yourself. Okay, and I'm not gonna sit here and pitch win-wins because I hate that, but let's look after ourselves. Um, we'll rely on the other parties to look after themselves, um, but you need to create a set of conditions uh, to make a good deal. And that's what setting the table is in my mind in negotiation. So today we enter, entered into a supplier negotiation and uh, the bottom line is they want to, we already buy a component from them and they want to sell us instead of the component, they want to sell us the entire manufactured product. So they met with uh, my team uh, before Christmas, which I didn't know about, uh, which is fine. I mean, it's just a regular sales call. And, and during the sales call, uh, this supplier brought up uh, this particular issue and in a sense, uh, my team blew them off. They weren't interested. We have a, a supply chain that's working for us. Um, behind the scenes, my team's worried about quality. They're worried about exclusivity requirements. And also, you know, what you find in purchasing in these, these mid-market and smaller businesses is everybody's 
just phobic of change. They don't want to go through the work of this. They're worried about uh, a million different things and they got other things to work. You know, they got more important things to worry about is the bottom line. If the supply chain is working, don't mess with it. Um, and I don't, I don't present that as a criticism by any stretch. I understand it, but, um, but I just see it over and over. And one of Olga's uh, uh, favorite pet peeves, you know, you've seen Olga Jelani on the show and go back and look at some of her videos. Um, one of her pet peeves when I send her into these companies is 100% of the time, you just hear the same story. Nope, they're a sole supplier, they're our key supplier, and no one else on the face of the earth makes this product. This is the only person I can buy with and I can't negotiate with them. We hear that story every single day. I'm not saying that's what the story was in this situation, but I just know the, the way purchasers, uh, manufacturing people uh, think, and they think they've got a great relationship, they work with the supplier every day, and they don't wanna mess with it, okay? So um, my concern was that we already have this counterparty as a key stakeholder in our business, being a supplier of a component. What are they thinking? What are they trying to accomplish? If we don't enter into this discussion, we never learn anything and where's the profit in that? So I overruled that decision of blowing them off. We've been through some false starts here in the new year getting together, but we ended up with a call today. And when I took the call, it was immediate, immediately obvious to me that we're at risk. Um, and the, the counterparty went out of their way to highlight that we are at risk, um, that you know we already buy from them. And I won't go through the details of this, but the bottom line is um, we better do the deal or enter into these discussions. So that was the feeling that I got right away. And, and I think if you're dealing with a non-negotiator, you know, someone else at my company, they would say, well, okay, we have to do this so that they get into it or they ignore it. I go, ah, yeah, they said that, but they're never gonna go forward with it. I treat this a little bit differently. And to me, this is a signal that we need to set the table differently than it's already set. So what's the first step to that? One is you need to understand what you're negotiating for and whether it's the same thing as your counterparty. So what are they negotiating for? Everybody negotiates for something. Nobody negotiates for a thing that they could just get without going through a negotiation, right? So they're in it for something. And it's often not the same thing. In this instance, we just want to buy, we just want to have a manufactured product that we already sell. And right now we do it in components. Um, uh, but we don't care about that. What we care about is, you know, do we have secure uh, supply? And, and is it a good quality, the same quality we have now? Can we sell it? you know, at a, at a fair price. And what they want is to, is to value add. They want to switch from components to a complete product. And so those are not necessarily the same thing. And it's important that we understand uh, what, that, that you understand, that I understand in my negotiation, what I want uh, out of this, what am I negotiating for? Um, I'm negotiating because I want a complete product and I'm negotiating to mitigate my risk because I'm already I'm already tied into these, these people. And they've been a good supplier on that component. And these guys are looking to, uh, to grow their business and to value add to make this a more profitable line for them. Okay, once I understand that, and once you understand what everybody's negotiating for in your negotiation, now you can, now you can answer the question as to how, uh, you, can, you can look at a couple of factors and see how you are rel uh, relative to your counterparty on these issues. So for example, risk. 
your need to succeed. Who, who loses the most if the deal doesn't get done? And in this situation, uh, I lose the most. They're a big company. They uh, make a lot of other stuff. We're probably a small account to them. And if we went away, it would not be the end of their world. I'm tied to their component uh, uh, on my call this morning, at least I was, tied to their component. And if they just walked out the door without a reasonable notice period, I have a problem on my hands, okay? Not an insurmountable problem, but a significant problem. If I look at the relative risks of a deal not getting done, that's on me, okay? So look at your risk, uh, and I just define it as you know, the need to succeed. Who has more need to succeed? Uh, time. Time is a huge issue in negotiation. If you're in a position where you need to get something done quick and your counterparty doesn't, they just sit it out. So if you want to look at public negotiations these days, um, so sit it out. They wait you out uh, by sitting around. Uh, look at public negotiations. Look at, uh, look at uh, the U.S. Look at Trump with Korea, uh, North Korea, with uh, Iran, and all of these international negotiations uh, with China that you see on a, uh, in the news on a daily basis, <clears throat> what the Americans have done, what Trump has done is put themselves into a position where time is on their side. And they've done that through sanctions. They've done that through um, messing around with, uh, uh, with treaties and, and uh, trying to divert pipelines and do all sorts of interesting things like that. And it's all geared to put pressure on the other side so that they have to do a deal uh, as soon as possible. And the American side can just sit around and wait. Don't forget about time. In my situation that I just described, um, I think we're neutral on timing issue. Um, but the other party could put a lot of pressure on me in terms of time uh, to get a deal done if they chose to do that. Okay, so I'm at risk on this. Look at your leverage. Leverage is, you know, if you do this, I'll do that. Or if you don't do this, I'll do this to you, something negative. Uh, so that, you know, if you do this, I'll do this, could be a positive thing. And if you don't do this, I will do a negative thing to you. These are our leverage issues. Again, I feel like the counterparty on this has a lot of leverage. Uh, potentially, I'm not saying they're gonna use it. They're probably good people, and it's not like I couldn't you know, fight back and sue and all those sorts of things. But in a negotiation, I'm not starting out in a great position. And you look at perceived, the fourth thing that for me is perceived power. And these are all the soft things in negotiations that you'll hear and read about, like uh, uh, location, um, you know, are you talking to somebody in authority or are you talking to a salesperson who's got to go back and talk to a sales manager if you're buying a used car or even a new car these days? Um, you know, you think about in a global context with the, with the Americans, again, think about uh, access to the president, right? It's always a big thing in negotiations on uh, between countries. You know, will the president sit down with you or do you have to uh, he, uh, meet these 18 preconditions before you even get to talk to the guy in charge, right? So... Those are the perceived powers. For example, one thing I like to do is um, I'm a big eater in fancy restaurants. Something I love, I'm a foodie. Um, and of course, I know in my towns, I know all the restaurateurs and the staff and everybody because I'm out a lot. So I like to hold these sessions over dinner in my favorite restaurant. It's just home court advantage. Anywhere you can find home court advantage has such a persuasive effect in negotiation. Um, in this instance, I think, I think this is just a non-issue so far. I mean, we're at the phone call stage and so it's a, um, let's just rate that one a tie, but on the need to succeed, I'm losing 
I'm tied, I'm, I could lose. And on leverage, I probably could lose. Um, I don't like the way my table is set. Therefore, what am I gonna do? I'm not even gonna start these negotiations. I'm gonna say, yes, I'm interested. Let's talk about it. Here's, here's a precondition. Precondition is I want a sample, right? And we're gonna go back and, and then we're gonna test it for quality. And we're gonna go back and we're gonna talk about this ourselves. Now, I, you're asking yourself, why am I disclosing this all to you on YouTube when this supplier can go in? Like, I'm not saying anything they don't already know um, unless they're not sophisticated and I think they're highly sophisticated. They already know all this, but here's, here's the trick. I also know that what I need to do is set my table. I need to change things up. And in three hours this afternoon, I was able to do that. I lessened my risk. I have all the time in the world. I, I got rid of the leverage that is potentially held over me. And we did that super quick with a concentrated effort within the company. And that's the first thing. That's a precondition for me to even enter into negotiation because I'm not gonna go in um, knowing that I'm gonna lose, right? Now I'm on an equal footing. I don't think I'm ahead, but I'm equal. And here's my prediction. I think we're gonna end up with a great deal with this company. Uh, I like them. Uh, I think it's going to be a good deal for everyone and we're going to make some money. That's it for today. I hope you all have a great weekend. Uh, please remember, if you like the content, to subscribe. Martinis with Scott. We're on YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and uh, cheers. Let's get on with the weekend.